three faith leaders on religion and social justice. This is Beliefs from Religion News Service. I'm Bill Baker. As we look back at our first six months of Beliefs, we notice some themes in the stories and topics we've been bringing to you. We've covered origins and practices, abuses and pain, and hate speech and bigotry. One theme we've seen is the enduring commitment of all religion to social justice and community. This week on Beliefs, we're returning to three of our favorite moments that talk about the way religion asks us to help one another and protect each other. Political activist, social justice advocate, and Rabbi Rachel Timoner from Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn is our first guest. I spoke with her back in March about her work both as a rabbi and a social justice advocate. Is uh, Jewish social justice any different than any other kind of social justice in, uh, the relig- in a religious sense? I think a lot of Jews grow up, whether they think of themselves as religious or not, with the voice of the prophets in their head. Even if they don't know that that's what the message is, like that it comes from the prophets, um, the voice of the prophets rings, uh, their voices ring loudly in the hearts and minds of Jews. And so I think that many Jews grow up with a sense of obligation to justice, um, to um, standing with the poor and the oppressed. Um, And and the the other piece I think that is so loud and clear in the Jewish imagination is the story of the Exodus. Um, That is our central narrative, that we were slaves and we became free, and that God is an agent of liberation. Um, And I think, so I think that it, I wouldn't say that um, it's fundamentally different than other religions, but it has a different narrative. It has a different set of, of, uh, it has a different language. It has uh, kind of different tropes. And um, you know, the, the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, has uh, so many mitzvot, commandments, that, that require us as Jews to, um, to be with the stranger, to be with the poor, to be for justice, to pursue justice, um, to stand for freedom for all people. So that is really a driving force within Judaism. So you started out as a person working in the field of social justice, became a rabbi very oriented to the social justice and the Jewish movement and in America. How do we deal with social justice in such a different time? Hmm. Well, I think that this current presidency puts into stark relief the unfinished business of America. And in some ways, things are worse than ever before, but in other ways, there's greater clarity about what needs to be done. There's greater clarity about the legacy of slavery in this country and the unfinished business of upending racism and its roots of really requiring reparations for that history and and for all of us to uh, have a reckoning. There's clarity about the persistent inequality uh, around gender and the ways that women continue to be second-class citizens in this country, continue to have our rights to control our body at question, to continue to have our bodies abused and harassed and touched inappropriately, just come to the surface in a different kind of way in our time. It doesn't mean that those things weren't there before. They were there before. It's just that we're looking at them differently. And in, in that way, I actually think that this time may, when we look back on it, be a time in which we realize that we had a bigger leap in consciousness than in previous eras. Because Uh, Donald Trump and the agenda he supports is so 
anathema to the kind of core moral foundations that many of us hold, that we are aghast. And that makes us look at the things we've been complacent about and complicit in. Now, you made some statements that were uh, political about how you feel about the administration, et cetera. Would you say those statements uh, vary considerably in the uh, in all of the Jewish people, uh, or are are they pretty consistent across the various Jewish movements? There is some variance among the Jewish people. I think it's something like eighty percent of uh, Jews in, in the last election voted with the Democratic Party. So, still a vast majority of the Jewish people are liberal and tend to. Um, be progressive. But there is a percentage of the Jewish people, especially in the Orthodox world, um, but not just in the Orthodox world, uh, who are increasingly aligning themselves with um, with the right. And that's that's an interesting development. I think it's related to our assimilation, our, our length of time and sense of security here um, as a people. I think that it's very much connected to um, an interpretation about which party and which candidates are better for Israel. Um, and and there are really stark differences among the Jewish people about how we understand what's better for Israel. The movement of progressives in this country, the movement of progressive Jews in this country, where do you see it going? As I said, I think there are some important conversations happening right now about really fundamental flaws in our society, fundamental injustices that, that, that really go to the roots of the whole society. And I think that I, I appreciate that in this moment, because of the extremism on the right, there's the ability to, to, to see clearly and name those forms of bigotry and um, inequality. I think that we have the possibility now take up some fundamental change that we have it we've been tinkering and I'd like to see us at this time take up really big questions like for example the green new deal to talk about what how are we going to reorient our entire society to live in peace with the earth and in a way that our grandchildren have a future and how are we going to consider the stranger in our midst and at our gates are we going to be the country that the statue of liberty symbolizes are we going to be a country that's open to, to new ideas and new populations and um, that embraces them? Or are we going to retract in fear? Um, are we going to be a country where <clears throat> in which people of all genders are able to live full lives and treated as equals and with full respect and dignity for their bodies and control over their bodies? Um, are we going to live in a country that takes responsibility for its sins and acknowledges our history of enslaving people, and that we have never adequately redressed that. I feel like part of what happens when you have a pendulum swing all the way to the right, which is where we are right now in terms of at least the presidency, is that you get to see things in stark relief and you get to ask the big questions of who are we and who are we going to be together as a society? And I'm hoping that this next chapter will answer it with, a, with an answer that includes everyone. Rabbi Timoner, um, a lot of what you've said uh, in this very interesting discussion has been political. Uh, one would argue, some argue, that religion and politics should be separated in this country. Obviously, you don't feel that way. Would you like to comment? Yes, this is a, this is a major question. Is the, is the synagogue or the church or the mosque 
really meant to be a place where people just come for comfort and where we just consider the texts in their ancient context only and we allow the prayers to wash over us and help us feel elevated? Or is it also a place that demands of us um, engagement with the questions of our time? And I feel very strongly that Judaism, at least, I won't speak for Christianity and Islam, but Judaism, at least, is very clearly a political religion. The Torah is a political document. It is about a nation. It's about a people who are oppressed. To strip Judaism of politics is actually wrong. To be whole, Judaism must include politics. And so I do speak from my bima, from my pulpit, about the events of our time. And I do not mince words because I feel that if I were to be silent about what's happening in our country, that I would be failing in my responsibility as a rabbi and as a Jew. Political activist, social justice advocate, and rabbi Rachel Timoner from Brooklyn. Continuing our review of community and social justice, is our conversation with the senior minister of the 350-year-old First Congregational Church of Old Lyme, Connecticut. Guest host Karen Hayward spoke with the Reverend Steve Jungheit about a Puritan approach to modern society. Harvey Cox has famously stated, we live in a post-Christian America. Christian ideals no longer dominates social thought and action. How does this resonate with you? Well, I've got, yeah, I've given this some thought because I think that's from a um, book that Harvey wrote in the late 60s when indeed it seemed as though um, Christian thought was not going to dominate America in the way that it once had. And in many ways that has held true. Uh, we are indeed a more pluralistic society. We are indeed, um, I think, a society which um, has increasingly recognized and incorporated other forms of religious belief, other forms of practice, other life systems. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It's something that I feel passionately about helping our congregation and helping our region, helping wherever I can uh, to, to establish links of communication with these other forms of belief. But in other ways, I think what's happened in America um, is uh, the opposite of what Harvey has diagnosed there. Um, because indeed, um, it seems that there is a strain of Christianity which has remained very dominant and very, um, uh, I would say, chauvinistic uh, in its attitude toward others. Um, that's not the kind of Christianity we practice here. That's not what I want to um, put out into the into the world. Um, but it is true that it does have a kind of cultural hegemony that I feel very strongly about um, countering in some way with a different kind of Christian discourse or a different kind of religious identity. What about the raw secular nature of our times that we're living in? Well, I, I, I would wonder uh, how deeply secular the secular actually is. When I look at American culture, I see religion all around us. I see forms of religion all around us that may or may not travel under the name of religion, but I see religious orientations and beliefs happening all around us. Now, whether or not that um, translates into a raw selfishness 
I think is a really, really good question. I don't know necessarily um, that that selfishness corresponds to the religious content. And I would say that I, I, I want to draw us as a community into these forms of religious expression that contest that form of selfishness. I think the most perverse phrase in all of the Bible, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? With the implication being that we're not attached to one another. We have no communal bonds. We have no communal attachments. I want to say we do. They exist across our town lines. They exist across our national lines. They exist across our religious and cultural lines. We're attached to one another. And I want to figure out ways that religion and religious stories can help us connect in that way. The Puritan leadership integrated their version of Protestantism into their political structure. What vestiges of Puritanism's severe reputation actually linger in our communities today? And are they helpful to our spiritual growth in today's world? Well, I think Puritanism has gotten a bad rap over the years. Um, And there's a strong piece of me that wants to salvage the reputation of the Puritans and do a kind of counter-reading of the Puritans. I think they did have um, a strong... uh, life of the mind. Uh, they, had, they were strongly word-centered, um, so they believed in the power of writing, in the power of oratory, in the power of rhetoric to shape lives, to shape minds, to shape communities. They believed in the goodness of the world, ultimately. They thought that the world was God's gift and that they had a duty to, to use their lives well. Um, they were consumed with a sense of wonder and awe at the natural world. Again, this is something that I think we in an age of climate change can learn from. There's this awe and wonder that many of them evince over the course of their, uh, the discourses that we do have from them. And again, they also have this sense that human beings and that human communities can sometimes be broken. This is where they enter this language of, of sin, and it's not a popular language for many of us now. However, I think underneath, the, underneath that word, there's this sense that human beings are frail, uh, we're prone to error, and we're, uh, we need to remain humble and open to correction. I think that's a profound gift that the Puritans give to all of us in the world, that we fail sometimes, politically, personally, and that we need to be open to correction and open to uh, new direction, uh, new openings. Um, There are some vestiges that I wouldn't want to bring into the modern world. Um, They owned slaves. I mean, one of the features of living in old Lyme is to realize that there are gravestones where slaves are buried in the local cemetery here. I live in a house uh, across the street from the church um, where a slave lived in the attic. This is a part of our history that I think we must grapple with, and we must grapple with it publicly. Um, so these are some of the vestiges, not only of the Puritans, but, uh, but of America. What is the biggest challenge that you face as a minister in today's world? Um, there are enormous challenges, and it's hard to even whittle down what the biggest one is. But if I had to, if I had to pick one, 
I would say that it's the shrinkage of the imagination um, of of all of us as as Americans these days, and it might not just be Americans. It might be the world where we somehow seem to be bounded by the borders of our geographies, um, the artificial boundaries of nations, of towns, of communities, without the ability to imagine the lives of people who live outside of those borders, um, beyond uh, where we might exist. So, you know, we have a... um, um, president right now who is declaring that our country is full, that our borders are full. And indeed, I think we're uh, having to contest that sort of thinking on all sorts of scales up and down the chain. Um, We're dealing with a problem right now here in our community where um, we have a food pantry that operates out of our our, uh, basement, which wants to limit its distribution to the people only of a certain geographical region, but not people outside of that region. And so what happens when these border crossings happen? Are we, are we our brothers and sisters keepers or not? That, to me, is the biggest challenge, to get people to imagine what it might be like living in South Africa, what it might be like living in Honduras, what it might be like living in Mexico, what it might be like living in Syria. So... In order to help with that, we have um, uh, done a lot of work around around immigration over the last few years. We've done a lot of work in resettling refugees over the last few years, and indeed that's been a feature of our community's work for a long, long time now. It's to bring people here into Old Lyme who um, uh, have had to flee their countries for whatever reasons, um, whether it's food insecurity or war or... uh, uh, economic insecurity. They've had to flee. We try to be a place where they can feel as though they can rebuild their lives here. Um, So I want us to be a window to the rest of the world to allow um, um, border crossings, if you will, uh, to happen all around us wherever we go. Reverend Steve Youngheit of the First Congregational Church of Old Lyme, Connecticut. Our last conversation is with a respected and thoughtful voice in the Catholic Church. Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest, a scholar, an author, and editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine, America. He has turned his attention to a social justice issue that has moved to the front of many faiths' consciousness in recent years. Methodist, Episcopalian, and Evangelical Covenant churches, just to name a few recent examples. Father Martin is the author of the book, Building a Bridge, How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Relationship of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. Well, an important thing to say is that in my book and in my talks, I'm not challenging any church teaching. Uh, And so I stay away from issues of same-sex marriage and even same-sex relation. But the point is that there's so much more to talk about when it comes to LGBT people. To use an example, uh, two or three weeks ago, I did a retreat for LGBT Catholic families uh, at a Jesuit retreat center in Warnersville, PA. And I met a couple who had three LGBT kids, uh, say 13, 15, 16. And now these kids aren't in any sort of marriage. They're not sexually active. And so the question is, you know, where is the church for them? And I asked them, you know, what is it like in your parish? And one of the kids said, well, some people won't talk to us anymore. 
So I think what we need to see is that treating LGBT people with respect, compassion, and sensitivity is much more than looking at same-sex marriage and same-sex relation because they're more than just their sexual lives. I mean, just as straight people are. We would never focus completely on chastity or something like that with straight people or even, say, straight young people, but we tend to do that with LGBT people, unfortunately. Most psychologists, psychiatrists in this world say about 10% of America is gay or lesbian, and they had no control over that. Do you want to talk a little about that subject? Well, that's right. As you say, most reputable psychologists, psychiatrists, biologists, social scientists say that people are simply born this way. More importantly, I say the lived experience of LGBT people. They'll tell you that, that they've always felt this way. And so to treat people differently because of the way that they've been born, to say that they're inherently sinful or they're, they're inherently bad, I think is really doing a number on people. I met a woman uh, who was the parent of a, a gay teen at a talk I gave about a year ago, and she said, do people understand how damaging that kind of thought is, how damaging it is to say, you know, you're intrinsically disordered in yourself? And she said to me, do people understand what that could do to a 14-year-old child? She said it could destroy them. And so I think we have to be really careful about those kinds of a kind of false science that says you choose to be LGBT because it can be really destructive for someone, especially someone in adolescence. And so the church needs to understand the effects of what I would call stigmatizing language uh, and, and almost language that does violence against someone's spiritual life. We treat LGBT people so differently than straight people. I mean, you know, divorced and remarried people, people who use birth control, people who use IVF, they are not exempting themselves from the church. They feel perfectly welcome in their parishes. It's the LGBT person who's sort of targeted and whose sexual morality is put under this kind of microscope. And so when you meet these people, you realize how great their faith is because they really have to want to be in the church. They have to choose to be in the church despite a lot of the persecution and exclusion that they feel. And so I always think of the line from uh, Jesus meeting the Roman centurion in, Cap in Capernaum where he says, you know, never in Israel have I seen such faith like this. And so that's the kind of faith that I see among these very faithful LGBT Catholics. Uh, let's talk about the church uh, and, and uh, the, not only the leaders of the church, but the uh, priests of the church and sisters and the nuns of the church. There's always been a kind of discussion saying there are a lot of uh, closet gay people uh, in, in the Catholic Church, closet clerics. Do you talk at all about that? I talk about that in my book, and here's the thing. There have always been uh, celibate gay priests, and what I mean by that to be specific is men who are homosexual but are also celibate, uh, chaste uh, gay members of religious orders, so brothers and priests and sisters in religious orders who live their vows of chastity. There have always been. I know them. I know probably hundreds of them. And I like to say to people, you have been to masses with them. They have baptized your children. They have buried your parents. They have given you First Communion. They have anointed you when you've been sick. You know, you may not know about them. They may have been your teachers in a, in a, in a religious school or an order school. They're there. The reason that they're not out, shall we say, or more public um, is, is there are many reasons. First of all, many of their bishops and religious superiors simply tell them, don't talk about it, right? Second, many of them are just afraid. And in this poisonous environment where, uh, you know, being gay is equated with being an abuser, right, which is a complete stereotype, who would want to come out? Who would want to be public? And third, a lot of them are simply private. One of the reasons, therefore, that we don't see uh, more counterexamples to the abusive gay priest, for example, is because these, these men, you know, hundreds of them, thousands of them, are unwilling or unable to, to be public about their sexuality. 
And so I think that what happens is the church misses an opportunity, and the, the stereotype of the gay priest is the abuser, which, of course, is a vicious circle because it makes people even less likely to want to talk about their sexuality. Now, I want to be clear. You know, I don't think priests need to be talking about their sexuality all the time, but I think that the church had some good examples of healthy and holy gay priests. You would see the conversation around gay priests and around homosexuality in general change, and I might add uh, gay bishops as well. Jesuit priest and scholar, author, Father James Martin. Thank you for listening. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. Technical support provided by Oregon Public Television. I'm Bill Baker, and thanks for listening.